Welcome back to another episode of Pocket Law Talks. This is your host, Brad. Over across the way is producer Devin. How's it going? Uh, today we're going to jump into, uh, I mean, it can't be described as anything other than just an absolutely tragic story out of Claremont uh, County, Ohio. I'm sure many of you have seen it in the news. Uh, we're talking about the case of uh, Chad Dorman. Um, He's a guy who uh, executed his three sons. Just just uh, almost unbelievable. Uh, the, the way this thing happens and, and how it goes down, it's, it's, it's just almost unbelievable. We're also going to get a little bit into familicide and how it's usually men perpetrating it and the they did not not necessarily the signs of familicide, but a little bit of it and why it happens. A lot of people tend to think it's a it's like a mental health disorder where like people just snap. When in reality, it's, it it goes a little bit deeper than that. I don't I at least the psychologists say it's not actually related to mental health. It's more related to like their feeling of a man and masculinity and you know that that's where that potential toxic masculinity could come in and also the fact that they feel like they're losing control so the, we're going to talk about chad dorman at first and talk about what's going on with his case and how big of a scumbag he is and then we're going to talk about the history a little bit of familicide and w- what psychologists feel about it and how it can be uh, portrayed in the media that isn't factual to real life yeah according to the prosecutor in, in claremont county uh Dorman's massacre started inside the home where he first shot his four-year-old. Uh, four-year-old's name was, was Hunter. Shot him twice. Uh, he then walks outside, and he's got a seven-year-old by the name of Clayton. Uh, poor Clayton tried to, to run away and, I guess, got partway into a uh, field, at which point his dad shot him from behind. Uh, he walked up to him and then shot him two more times, like just freaking assassination style. Um, he then takes his three-year-old, um, whose name is, Ch- uh, Chase, out of the mother's arms. Literally rips her out of her arms and shoots him. And shoots him. And, and she just... fights back during this time, and she ends up getting shot in the hand, which is, uh, which is odd, because typically in these c- scenarios, you know, he kills, they would kill everybody. I don't necessarily know if she ran away or not. Uh, there's a lot of things still remaining under, uh, behind closed doors with this case, which is surprising with how much media attention it's received. But she was just shot in the hand. Not that that makes it any better, but she wasn't killed. He also had a stepdaughter who named Alexis who had fled from the house screaming that he was killing everyone. It almost seems as if he wanted her to do that because he, he had a long rifle. When the police pulled up, he was, like, if you've seen the body camera footage, he was sitting calmly on the stoop of his house with his rifle right next to him, and he just immediately put his hands up, and he was being super calm. Um, it's like it's yeah, as it's if actually, it's, he just actually it's another day. Yeah, like it's it really gives like psychopath, sociopath, like eerie vibe to it with how calm that man is, just killing his whole family. And, and as you'd expect, the, the the police were fired up. They're they're yelling at him to to stand up with his hands on, on his back. They're assuming I think that you know because in these cases, often you see if almost every time I can think of almost in the history of these type of cases the parent ends up killing themselves or they do suicide by cop, one of the two. Right. And so I think the police were anticipating that. And if you watch the body cam footage, they're trying to figure out a route to him where they can maintain cover for themselves, but also um, uh, keep him under control because they know that in many cases they will be put in a situation where they have to shoot him because that happens in these type of cases. And they're they're sort of talking back and forth about whether to uh, approach him Putting their own safety at risk or not, but 
one of the officers really pushes the other one because he sees there's kids here and, they, and they're trying to get a medical help, hoping that hoping against hope that there might be a chance they can uh, they can they can still rescue them or, or get the medical treatment. They might survive. I don't understand why police don't use bulletproof glass on their like typical cruisers because then at that point you can just fucking run them over if you run needed to. Over. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think uh, I don't know if they make bulletproof glass would withstand a rifle very well, but it's super expensive. I remember reading about the. Um, I remember reading about the JFK assassination and when he was shot in the parade in Dallas, you know, the, the car was equipped with, with uh, glass that would have protected him. And he insisted on riding with the convertible top down uh, on that day. But I remember the outfitting of the car that the president rides in because of all the special armor added like $250,000 to the cost of it. And I so, mean, yeah, I had a buddy who had a Jeep and the door, just the doors were uh, bulletproof up to nine millimeter. And he said that it had costed like an extra 40,000 on the car, which was yeah, absurd because I mean, he didn't need it. Yeah. And if you start thinking about equipping every police car out there yeah. with that, that, that becomes cost prohibitive. Makes sense. Ar- arguably whether it's cost prohibitive, but certainly beyond most uh, jurisdictions. I guess that's why budget. they have those big ass SWAT APCs or whatever, right. like mini tanks. Where they can bring them in if they have a, a known situation like that so those weren't the people that pulled up though like these were just your typical run-of-the-mill cops well it was such an an unexpected thing and it was in a rural area so probably SWAT vehicles like that are probably not are probably miles and miles away right so they're the first responders and and you know then they're seeing this massacre scene and trying to figure out what what to do but they do respond and get him pretty pretty quickly because he's pretty cooperative and, and you can tell they're frustrated because it's if you watch the rest of the body camera video the police officer that is walking him back to the uh, vehicle, um, it, you know, handling him, I'd say, uh, in an inappropriately level of aggressive way. Uh, and, and the doorman asks him, can you, can you hand me my wallet out of his back pocket? And he's just kind of flabbergasted by it. And the police officer says, you have the right to remain silent. Fucking use it. Just like that. And it's like, uh, all right. Uh, you know, what they were seeing in that situation, I can't, you, you can't blame him for the human side taking over a little bit there. And and showing a little bit of fire back at him. Um, There's some discrepancies with uh, some things that happened. So like how you had said that boy, um, he the, he tried to run away to the field. He was shot from behind, and then Dorman walked up to him and shot him two more times. But then the prosecution also states that one of the boys tried to flee into a nearby field, but Dorman hunted his son down and brought him back to their home before killing him. So it makes me think that that boy even despite being shot three times by a rifle, still was not dead, and he dragged him back in his home to deliver the killing blow. Yeah, it sounds like the two two final shots may have been the, the fatal ones. It's just uh, it's just a, a crazy scenario for any police officer to walk up onto because you know you think about there you know there was the the mother uh, several years back that drove her kids in a car into the river and killed them. That's the type of thing you normally see that they get in the mindset that they are that they would be better off dead. And if they're not there for the children, then the children would be better off dead. And so then they take they take everybody out. Oh, uh, I feel like, in a, at least when women do it, I feel like it's a big portion. Like, I, th- I feel like when women do it, it actually is a mental health issue or like a, like a postpartum depression. I feel like that's the most Sometimes. common. Or they're in an abusive relationship and they don't right. want to leave the kids in that situation. Right. But outside of that, like men tend to just like, fucking snap or at least that's what people say but psychologists say that all of these are usually premeditated well it was very it, it was interesting how, how, how it ended up all playing out several or seven days after the shooting 
the, the prosecutor there in Claremont impaneled a grand jury. The grand jury very quickly returned a 21-count indictment against Dorman, including nine counts of aggravated murder, eight counts of kidnapping, and four counts of felonious assault. How they got to nine counts of aggravated murder. And in Ohio, there's different scenarios or different um, uh, avenues by which you can get to being aggravated uh, murder. You know, one can be that it's a child. One can be that it's your own child. One that you used excessive force, like the multiple shots like this did. So they used different theories to add three different counts per victim of aggravated murder. And, you know, that's different than Indiana. Indiana doesn't have such a thing as aggravated murder. Aggravated murder includes something that enhances it to something more than just a murder. And that also gives the um, uh, prosecutor some leeway in what they can do from a penalty standpoint, too. As uh, one of the local council, local defense council there in the area said that the Claremont County Prosecutor's Office threw the kitchen sink at this guy, understandably, understandably so. Well, yeah, he didn't just have nine counts of aggravated murder, but he also had eight counts of kidnapping and four counts of felonious assault. Yeah, and then the kidnapping. Uh, That's probably from taking the kids and bringing them back in the house when they tried to run away, I would imagine. Right, and if they're if the kid's under 13, if you use the kidnapping, again, that put, helps to aggravate the situation. Kidnapping is uh, it's a bit of a misnomer. People people jump to the um, what would be the kind of the logical conclusion. What everybody thinks of kidnapping is a stranger offers a kid a candy bar, gets them in the car, and takes away with them. Right. Right. The kidnapping is way more broadly defined than that. If you if you you can kidnap an adult first off, doesn't have to be a kid. And second, if you take in any in any way you take somebody and control them against their own will in a forceful way, especially with a deadly weapon, you can charge somebody with kidnapping. So um, that's, I think, they jump to that in, in regards to, especially like when they take the kid out of the mother's arm and then shoot him. I mean, those are easy things right. to add the kidnapping charge. But it's a reflection of the anger of the grand jury probably more than anything. Right. I mean, local defense attorney Clyde Bennett said that, legally speaking, a person can commit aggravated murder in multiple ways against the same victim, and each one is a different charge potentially leading to a conviction. And he says, quote, in the act of kidnapping a person, you killed someone, and then you kidnapped a person to kill them, and then that person is under 13. That's three ways you can get to aggravated murder, he said. And each one, you know, could be a separate conviction. Three yeah, they can only be sentenced on one of those, so you can't convict right, them of three. Right, right. But that's three counts. multiple you can get chances. Count, you can be convicted of three counts of murder for the same victim, but then when the judge sentences you, they're going to they're gonna either merge the, the convictions or just treat it as one, and you can only be sentenced for one. But all of these are of such a high level and, and such a violent nature that they can be um, uh, punished by death. Yeah, and it, do, it does say that. Three different charges of aggravated murder for each of the three children had it up to nine charges, though Dorman could only be sentenced for one per child, like you said. So per, per child, though. Right, all three can be stacked. Right. But once you get a... You get a death sentence on one. Yeah, like <laughs> you're already dead. You can't you can't kill somebody three times. I mean, what wasn't there a guy who had been sentenced to like 450 years just like a few months ago? Yeah, and you'll see sometimes uh, people are given multiple life sentences. That happens in these kind of cases too, because for each 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 individual murder, the maximum penalty can be given, and if it is, then you, know, you have three life sentences. But what does that mean? I mean, now here's a here's a misconception I always had. I thought that when a judge sentenced you to life, it immediately means, like, until you die. Like, you are there until you die. But certain states have it to where life is capped at 45 to 60 years. Right. And you can still get paroled on a life sentence. Right. Yeah. Is Indiana like that? No. Indiana has uh, uh, um, life without parole. It's called LWOP, L-W-O-P, life without parole. 
and it is exactly that. So if you, you it's an enhanced um, uh, charging mechanism in Indiana. You can charge the death penalty, or you can charge life without parole. Both of them require that the defense side be specifically qualified to handle those kind of cases, and they are um, a separate finding that you must make that they should be sentenced to life or they should be sentenced to What to type death. of vetting does the defense need to go through to be qualified? Yeah, I'd like to get death penalty qualified. You, you basically have to do some of them. You have to do some cases in, in, in well, the trial. Well, how could you do one if you've never been qualified? You sit with somebody that is. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so you've done a couple, and then they'll start letting you do your own. Um, under those, you know, they'll have to make you can be found guilty of the murder. Then they sh- they can find guilty of whether you should be or find that you should also be given the penalty of death or life without parole. They're very serious cases, and they raise the stakes. and And prosecutors know that when they're filing the death penalty or they're filing li- filing a life without parole, they know they're putting a, a, an extra burden on the jury. So they know they're only going to file those kind of cases in the most serious settings because you don't want somebody to walk. Because the jury feels bad about Killing the fact them. that they might get killed out of this, or yeah. that they might spend the rest of their life in prison out of this, and they're playing a role in doing that. So that's why you'll see it save for the most egregious situations. How common is that in Indianapolis? Indianapolis uh, specifically, like maybe Mary LWAP County. and death penalty cases. I would say you might see one every two to three years. Um, How often are, are they usually successful? Very common for a death penalty case to plead guilty to life without parole. So they'll let the you know the the defendant take a life sentence in return, not go after death penalty. I feel like dying would just be easier at that point. Yeah, I mean that's a tough that's a tough situation. But you also got to remember some a lot of times the, the people that are engaging in this level of sort of uh, off the charts violence, they're killing children, uh, they're killing their own children, they're killing police officers. You know, those are the kind of things that get you life without parole and get you death penalty are coming from such a terrible background that they're not looking at living in their life in prison as much worse than what they're already living in. in yeah, that makes sense. In the free. So it's a it's a terrible terrible situation all the way around, but prosecutors will save these cases for these extreme situations because they do know that it puts legally it's still supposed to be the same proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but it puts a pressure on a jury a jury to find somebody guilty especially to the death penalty that is unique to those cases, and so they will um, really save those for the the most uh, egregious acts. They're also extremely expensive to prosecute because not only will the defense throw everything in the kitchen sink that they can, experts will get appointed for the defense that wouldn't maybe necessarily get appointed in other situations, but also the cost of appeals. Anytime there's a death penalty uh, conviction found, uh, those are going to get appealed and appealed and appealed and appealed and and. In, unless the person just doesn't want to live, um, and the cost of that is is extraordinary. I think the average death penalty or death row inmate, I think in Indiana, sits uh, awaiting twenty plus years before they're actually put to death. Why is that? Why do they wait so long? I mean, I know the appeals and everything, but well, does it really think, take twenty plus years to get through the appellate process? Well, you got to think they'll they'll appeal the they'll appeal the conviction on multiple different levels. Uh, they'll do a motion to correct errors with the trial court. Then they'll do the then they'll do the the appeal to the to the lower level court. Then they'll appeal it to the court of appeals. Then they'll appeal it to the Indiana State Supreme Court. And then they're going to make allegations that it, it's um, um, uh, impacting their federal rights. And they'll appeal it to the Seventh Circuit. And then they're going to appeal it to the um, the uh, all the way up to try to do the Supreme Court. All those appeals take forever. They'll file multiple of those. Then they'll file what's called a post conviction relief. Post conviction relief 
is going to be something along the lines. Well, my defense attorney did X, Y, and Z wrong. Right. And they're going to that starts. It's almost like you wouldn't want to take those cases because even if you do your damned best, like you're going to be accused of wrongdoing. Yeah, if you're a defense attorney and 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 you don't win those, which many times you're not going to because of the heinous nature of them, and they usually have. I mean, like this case that I mean, virtually a laydown for the prosecution, and the gun's sitting right next to him. The kids are laying right there. The wife was there to see who did it, and she's also shot. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious who did it in this case. I mean, they found him with the rifle right next to him. Yeah, what are you going to do as a defense attorney? But even if you do the best thing you can, you get a conviction, they're then going to attack you for a post-conviction relief, say you didn't do your job right, and then once that is denied at the trial court, then that goes through all the appeals, and it goes through the next round of appeals. And then they'll make all these what are called habeas corpus motions, saying that there is their rights are being violated because it's a death penalty case, and that goes to the Court of Appeals. And so it just gets drug out and drug out and drug out. To some degree, rightfully so. We don't want to obviously guess somebody into a, a death penalty sentence. Yeah, I mean, I guess in situations like this, though, I mean, like, typically, I'm very defense-side favorable, right? So, like, I'm not someone they'd want to have on the jury because I'm very favorable to defense. But in cases like this or in even in rape cases or sexual assault cases where I like the evidence enough to really make me feel like they did it, I would be willing to throw the book at the person. Like I'd be the perfect person for the prosecution side in this in this regard. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would feel not bad at all for giving someone a life sentence. Well, and, and what the grand jury did in this in Dorman's case, where they literally gave him chalked full of a bunch of different charges, that's the kind of reaction that jury's going to get. That here's the trial too. Is this case going to go to trial? Probably, unless the prosecutor agrees to give him life without parole. Uh, in return for not yeah. making him try the cost of a death penalty case. Yeah, I mean, in this regards, um, it's almost like the prosecution's more incentivized to do a trial, especially because, I mean, they'd get trial experience, they would be on a highly publicized case, and, you know, you get to fucking ramrod this guy who clearly deserves it. Yeah, and, and well, there's lots of things to go into that, though, because, you know, you've got family that did the family that is still gonna be alive there's grandparents involved there's the wife involved and right, you also they want get closure a form of justice for them and yeah closure absolutely and, and closure may be life without parole for them you know so a lot of times prosecutors will defer to the family on on those kind of things too do you really really want to see a death penalty conviction here or are you okay or are you comfortable with this guy doing the rest of his life in prison knowing he cannot get out I mean how often does any sort of conviction ever make the victims feel better though? I feel like it's not as often as people like to think. Yeah, I mean, I, I looking back on my um, uh, days as a prosecutor, uh, I spent a few years where I, I prosecuted nothing but uh, murder-type cases. And um, there's some of the families that I've uh, made a connection with and stay in touch with. And, you know, we're 10, 15 years later, 20 years later, and, you know, I see them on Facebook still grieving. You know, they're yeah, still, yeah. They're still, they're still grieving the loss. They, they get notices every time the defendant gets moved from one facility to another in the DOC, and it just constantly reminded picks at that scab again. And you know, every birthday, you know, especially um, uh, those that lost a child. So the parents, if the parents were still alive and they lost their child, it, it just it, it, do they get? I guess some sense of justice. I don't. Are they relieved that the person is not free? Yeah, I, but it doesn't replace the hole in their heart. Right. Doesn't. They're never going to. Originally, um, his bail was set at $20 million, which, of course, they were putting that thinking he would never get it. But then they ended up uh, actually revoking his bail, right? Yeah, and in Ohio, apparently, in, on murder cases, you are able to, to get a bond. and Sometimes it's going to be set pretty high. 
Um, but they did convert his eventually to a no bond hold. Probably when they started talking about doing the, 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 the death penalty is when they converted it to that. Here in Indiana, uh, if you're charged with murder, you're automatically held without bond. Now you say that, but I've seen, especially on my case, where like I've been going through the files and stuff like that, just cleaning stuff up, where people were very clearly charged with murder and very clearly granted a bond. Yeah, that, that's extremely it's extremely rare. So in Indiana, they have an initial no bond hold on a murder charge, but you can do what's you can file what's called a motion to let bail. When you file a motion to let bail, you're saying that the state's case is so weak or of such a weak nature or lacks so much evidence that the, the defendant should be allowed to post bail. And that does happen on occasion. Um, it's a strategy that can be used to sort of explore the, case, the state's case as well. So there's times that you do file those. But more often than not, I'd say the vast, vast majority of the time, uh, somebody charged with murder in Indiana is held without bond until the case is resolved. Even if you're another. charged with murder and not convicted, like your life is pretty fucking screwed from that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been on this side and, and seen uh, cases where the person was charged but not convicted. Um, uh, you know, People you can, still use that against you. Yeah, but you can get it expunged. It can be completely cleared off your record if you if you're if you're not convicted of it. Typically, you know, you can only get one expungement. But what about when you're not convicted? Is that infinite? Not guilties and dismissals. You can get as many as you get. Okay. Every one of those can be expunged, and they are truly so. Little, uh, I guess, uh, behind the scenes baseball here. The for convictions of level five felonies and more, you can get those expunged, but they stay on your record and they say expunged next to them. It's kind of so that's level, when he means more, he means level five through ones. Level six, even though a higher number, is actually the lowest level of felony you can get. That's correct. So level ones through five and murder, uh, well, some violent offenses can never be expunged. Murder is one of them. There's some sex crimes that can never be expunged. But for the major felony cases that can be expunged, it still says expunged next to your record if you get a conviction. If you're charged with one of those serious offenses, any serious offense, and you're not convicted, it's either dismissed or you beat it at jury, that can be expunged uh, immediately. Entirely. Yeah. And it looks like it, it'll look like from a background check for people that don't know you, that don't know your story, that it never happened. Now, you know, some employers may Google Google your name. And if you have you have a story out there on Google about what happened, certainly that, that can still be um, something that hurts you. But I think for the most part... Um, you know, I, I've got a couple clients I know that have landed back on their feet pretty decently. Um, kind of sucks too. Cause like if they make a news story about you and then you're not convicted of it, you, you don't have any like really legal remedy to make that fixed other than hoping you can reach out to them and they're kind enough to take down their story. Right. Yeah. There isn't a good, there's nothing to keep the media from reporting what was accurate news at the time. And so then that goes down in the annals of history of, 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 uh, the internet and it will always be out there, even if you end up ultimately beating the case. Right, because how often does a media company come out and say, we made a mistake without a lawsuit threatening to do it? Well, if they honestly, to report somebody was arrested, even though they don't get convicted, it's not a mistake, right? Right, right. So uh, if they make an honest mistake, they're actually better off to acknowledge it, because that'll help keep the damages down for the lawsuit they're going to do. But in a situation where they're just reporting someone was arrested, you almost always see disclaimers They'll all say accused of, or they'll say alleged, or they'll say things like presumed innocent. They'll throw that stuff in there just to protect themselves. Just to be safe. Yeah, you'll see that. So a little history of familicide and why do men kill their families? And we say men because it is a highly gendered crime, majority happening with men killing their immediate nuclear family, not so much women. Like we said earlier, you know, there are cases of it happening, but it is strikingly in the men majority that tend to do this. 
And the media likes to portray these killings as someone who has, quote-unquote, snapped. But usually the evidence in psychology suggests that they were premeditated and had been something the perpetrator had considered for a while. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, Well, just I, think I, of the, the Dorman situation. I mean, there could what could have possibly happened to cause you to snap on all three children? Right? I could see, like, you know, it. obviously you should never, ever do something like this to your child. But you could see where, like, one child was being a complete shithead and somebody loses control of themselves and overreacts to that one child. But... He killed everybody. Yeah, I like mean, not everybody. Style but yeah. assassination killed his three three boys. Like he had to have been thinking of this for months. Right. Absolutely. I wonder what what like the day where he decided he was going to do it. Like what happened? Well, one of the interesting things is and you don't always see this in this case because many times the family uh, that are related to the, the people that do these kind of crimes just kind of go into a hole and and and, and don't want to speak or don't want to talk. But it's no shit. Because yeah, why would you want? What are you, what are you going to do or say? But the Dorman's uh, Dorman's dad actually gave an interview, and he's just like he was flabbergasted. He's like, I don't know what happened. So my son was a good father. He, I've seen him. He's taking. He took good care of his. He loves his family. Because this is, this is not him. It doesn't make any sense. And then to see the the cold way he responds at the scene when his you know, his dead children are laying there, and he's just kind of. Uh, nonchalant, casually interacting with the police. It's, uh, you know, it wasn't... Maybe he was a sleeper cell. If you see... <laughs> well, if you see somebody that's had, like, one of those true snap reactions, right, where in Indiana, um, if you act in a, a moment of passion, they have a, it's, there's a crime called voluntary manslaughter. It's a lesser charge of murder where there's some sort of act of heat of passion where you overreact and, and you, you kill someone. Um, but when you see that happen, almost always those people, once the emotion, moment of the emotion comes down, they have some remorse for what happened, right? Right. They're, they're immediately kind of like, oh, shit. Yeah. What did I just do? Even in court, he hasn't shown that. No. He's been stone-faced. It's, it's just like, yeah, like he wanted this to happen. Even despite his confession, he pled not guilty at his first hearing. It is unusual, though, with his situation. Well, he did confess. I don't know if we said that, but he, he, he did confess. Yeah. I didn't, and Not much to confess, too, because obviously, but he did. And... Like, like we mentioned before, most of the time the perpetrator will also kill himself, and he just he, it, yeah he didn't. It wasn't like he was thinking about it and like chickened out. No, nah, he was sitting on the stoop of his house with his rifle right next to him, just chilling, waiting it out till the police got there. Yeah, so bizarre. A history of domestic violence is also a key factor for why men kill their families. Individual familicide studies show varying rates, but a recent interview of existing studies found a history of domestic violence was identified in thirty nine percent. To 92% of cases. So, of course, this was a very broad study to get such a wildly percentage. Right. But it does show that that was existing already in, you know, at least a good portion, anywhere from a third to, you know, 90% of these cases. Well, it's, it's something that's interesting to, to build on to that, Devin, is the, the um, there's something called lethality factors. So when they study murders and why they happen, they... They've created lethality factors. So, what makes somebody like lethality? Yeah, like what, like lethal. how killed. Yeah. yeah, what are what are the factors that go into somebody becoming lethal? And domestic violence across the board is a high lethality factor for any type of murder. So it's interesting to see that it also applies to someone that would that would would kill their children. But it also makes some sense. They obviously have a propensity for violence. Already. Right. I mean, that's also the like the most dangerous calls police respond to. Right? Is domestic violence calls. Correct. There, there is a high lethality factor for the the victims of domestic violence and the responders responding to it because they're almost always dealing with somebody that's already got a 
propensity for some some violence. In their and they're emotionally like, charged. They're emotionally charged. They're willing to hurt those that are supposedly the ones closest to them. So they're definitely willing to hurt some cop who's intervening. Exactly. And so it's interesting to see that it applies to this type of situation. Obviously, I think part of the reason you're getting a wide range on that, too, is it is not common. This is not a common Yeah, occurrence. this isn't a common thing. So... Another key risk factor is that the adult victim leaving or communicating their intention to leave the relationship. And this is a well-documented precipitator for intimate partner homicide or intensified violence. Yeah, and as we as we follow, in, you know, we'll see what happens with the Dorman case. But there may be developments in it where we decide to do a, another episode on this. I think it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, even though they've got a slam dunk case, law enforcement, the people that are involved in these kind of cases, they want to know. You know, how and why, what yeah. led up to, there's something that has to be something here. So it'll be really interesting to see, you know, was there some sort of drastic um, relationship issues between the Mr. Dorman and his wife? Was there this outside stress? I did see a story where they thought that there has been some... Um, well, the neighbors said that they had heard, like, yelling recently coming from the house from some things that I had read. Somebody had lost a job or something income-related. I think the dad had said in his interview that he felt like there had been some financial issues that hit the household. And so you, you just don't know. But. And this, that's, that actually really is good for, like, what, in regards to what I was about to say, too, is, and I wanted to make this very clear, Familicide is not always preceded by violence. However, in every single instance, 100% of the instances, it is preceded by a sense of losing control, a desire for and sense of entitlement to control, especially over finances and the family quote-unquote unit, is a more common denominator. Familicide often occurs in the face of aspiring loss of control over these areas, especially by a male head of the household. A loss of control over quote-unquote masculine domains is at the heart of familicides, even when there is no clear history of domestic abuse. Some perpetrators whose actions may appear, quote-unquote, out of the blue have been described in research studies as having their lives unraveling in ways that are a- acutely tied to their gender identity. Yeah, it's really – so if you sort of – They're feeling less of a man. They feel like they're losing everything. Yeah, it's their job to provide. I'm supposed to be the one the one providing for this, you know, for my family, my house. And, yeah, I, I guess you get to the point where you're – Like having an identity crisis. Oh, yeah, I can't do this anymore. If I can't do it, then they're, they're better off not being here. I can't – I can't. It's a really warped way of looking at it. It, it. it is, and it's it's uh, it's hard to understand. I mean, if you if you're like most parents, it's your worst nightmare is to lose one of your children. So to play a role in that is it's just a very difficult thing to understand. Obviously, it'll be interesting to see at some point. Does it come out what was going on in the family dynamics of this family? Does is there a you know, a psychiatric evaluation done of Mr. Dorman that right. exposes that there was some some mental illness issues going on that, that people just weren't aware of. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, got the, the whole uh, negative uh, attachments that come with mental illness that sometimes get applied to males differently. Obviously, there's a lot of movement going on to try to, to scale that back. But, you know, who knows? Maybe Dorman is one of those guys that was just not comfortable with asking for or seeing help. We don't know. There'll be a lot to come out on this. It'll be interesting. And, you know, if there's some substantial developments on that, this will be something we can do um, another future episode on as well. There, There is a uh, – I don't want to say good example because this is horrendous, but it was a very highly publicized example of where that sense of entitlement of control comes in and can cause, you know, the the man to kill his family unit. In 2016, Fernando Manrique killed Maria Lutz and their two children, Elisa and Martin, by pumping carbon monoxide gas into the home while they slept. He also died at the scene from the gas. 
The inquest into the the inquest into the killings found that although there was no known history of violence in the relationship, Manrique had a possessive attitude towards his wife, was in financial stress, and planned the crime over several several weeks when he realized Mar- Maria or Mariah was leaving him. Too often, when fathers kill their children, the tendency is to frame it as a case of mil- mental illness rather than gender-driven violence. And uh, as someone who's like a, I, I firmly believe that mental health is a very common issue in our country and i think it's just getting worse and i think a lot of times people are punished not related to like cases like this but in things where instead having mental health support would help them and yeah i i definitely agree that this would be more of gender driven violence i think it comes out of that entitlement to control um it comes out of their they feel like they're losing their gender gender identity and at the same time it's that selfishness of thinking like if i can't do it then nobody else can I mean, anybody who's been in an abusive relationship has heard their partner say, man or woman, say, if I can't have you, then no one can. Right. You know what I mean? And some people are more serious about saying that shit than others. Like, well, what I, does that mean to the specific person is all up to how likely they are to commit violence. Yeah, and in the, in the case of uh, that you were just speaking about with um, uh, Mr. Was it Vasquez, is that right? Fernando Manrique. Manrique, I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Manrique, uh, you know, losing control of finances, wife's leaving him. He gets to the mindset. And he's that, already possessive. Yeah, that no one else can have her. Well, then it takes it to the next level, which is, well, if no one else can have her and I'm going to do her in then and I'm going to do myself in, then there's nobody for the kids, so it's the right thing to do to do the whole family in. Um, carbon, carbon monoxide poisoning, I suppose, is maybe a more humane way of going about it than Mr. Dorman. Not to get to, uh, like, the super religious aspect, but, you know, if, if – I mean, I guess he would go to hell, right? So he wouldn't see his family in the afterlife. But can you fucking imagine if you did just being like, what the f... Like, what are you doing? Like, why are we here right now? How does that conversation go? Yeah. (laughs) Well, like I said, we will be uh, keeping keeping tabs on the Dorman case. We'll watch out as the developments go. And sort of like we've done with the uh, Delphi murder case. As things become... More developments come out, we may do some more episodes on it if it... uh, uh, it has some interesting aspects to it that we haven't covered today. So we'll be watching that one and, and following up on it. Obviously a really tough topic, something that's just absolutely mind-boggling, tragic. and Really surprising that there isn't more information out about it yet, but I think it's because he's most, other than his confessional, he's kind of remained tight-lipped ever since, which is really weird because especially with like serial killers and stuff, they tend to like gloat about their crimes. Yeah, and, and, and the probable cause affidavit isn't out yet, so we'll, we'll watch for that and take a look at it and see if there's some 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 details that are worthy of discussion and, and certainly address that again. But uh, we thank you for listening to our show today, and I hope you'll uh, share it, uh, give us some shout out, and uh, yeah, we love, love your feedback. And yeah, if you ever have any show ideas, make sure to throw those out there too on our posts when we share these. But uh, thanks again for listening to another episode of Pocket Wall Talk. See ya.